This is A Disciple's Point of View, One Disciple's Perspective on God's Word. My name is Craig and I'll be your host today as we go through a myriad of topics related to Christianity. Hello everybody and welcome back to the podcast called A Disciple's Point of View. You're in chapter four, if you will, of the series entitled Tumultuous Times. We've talked about previously two segments about the signs of the times that are coming, two episodes about that. And then the episode last week was what is the tribulation and why is it needed? This week, we're going to talk about something called the rapture of the church. Now, rapture is R-A-P-T-U-R-E. Basically, what it is, is it, it is God removing his church off of the earth. Okay, we'll just start with that basic concept and where it can be found in the scriptures, because that's very important, because if, if it's not found in the scriptures, i.e. the Bible, it really doesn't matter. I can make up whatever point of theology I wanted to and call it scripture, but we always go back to the Bible, right? So let's do that right now. The first reference about it was by Jesus himself, and that's in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. This is a verse where he talks about, I am going away to prepare a place for you in my father's house or many mansions. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So we already get this early idea, and I say early, it was towards the end of Jesus's ministry. I believe it was at the Last Supper. He was sitting here talking to his disciples about a great number of things. And he gives them the early idea that they were going to be removed by him off of the earth. So let's fast forward to 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 4, verse 13, going into chapter 5 until verse 11, it's a very long piece of scripture about the rapture of the church. And you can go there and read it for yourself. Basically, it's talking about being gathered unto the Lord, being caught up by him. And that we're also not destined for wrath. And I'll go into that here in more in detail here in a few minutes. Another piece of scripture is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54. And that's more or less kind of how it's going to take place. So in 1 Thessalonians 4 through 5, we get the idea that the rapture will take place. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54, it kind of tells us that, you know, we're not just going to get caught up in these earthly bodies, that we're going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, and then we will be gathered to the Lord. And there's another verse of scripture in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, where in chapter 1 of Revelation, John, the apostle John, already talked about how he was on the island of Patmos because he was preaching Jesus in the gospel. And he goes through a whole bunch of things about the churches that existed in that time. And many believe it was prophetic of churches throughout time. And others, others believe it was a map of history for the church age. Regardless of all that, in chapter 4, Jesus says, come up here and I will show you what must take place next. Immediately, John says he was in the spirit and he was before the throne of God. Many people believe that this is a picture of the church because John is an apostle of the church of Jesus Christ, and he has basically been raptured up into this vision into heaven. Okay, So those are the main portions of scripture in the New Testament that talks about this concept called the rapture of the church. Jesus didn't talk about it a whole lot, and there's a good reason why. Okay, Jesus told the disciples that he had a lot to tell them, but he couldn't tell them at that moment because they couldn't bear it. They were basically 
not even getting fundamental issues of what Jesus was teaching. Many times the disciples went to him about parables he would tell, and they just flat out just didn't understand it. And there were many times that he got frustrated with them. And I can imagine why, because we also have to imagine that the gospels are snapshots of Jesus's ministries. Okay. It doesn't tell the whole story of the three and a half years. As a matter of fact, at the end of the book of John, the apostle John says, you know, there were many more things that Jesus did that aren't written down. And I suppose if everything was written down, not even the entire world could hold the books that would be written. That's an actual verse in the scriptures. So clearly there was a lot that happened that isn't said. We just simply have to trust the things that are in the Bible. Otherwise, again, we could sit here and make up whatever we wanted to. Regardless of that, in Matthew 15, verse 16, Mark 8, verse 21, Luke 18, verse 34, and John 20, verse 9, are all examples of Jesus going, do you not still understand? Don't Why don't you get it? Basically kind of thing. So if they couldn't get simple fundamental issues, okay, they're not going to get the concept of God is going to basically create a whole body of believers that are going to believe upon Jesus Christ and his soon death on the cross and shedding of blood for their sins. As a matter of fact, at one point in the Gospels, the Jesus is telling the uh, disciples that he is going to die soon. And the apostle Peter goes, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus looks directly at him and says, get thee behind me, Satan, because obviously on a spiritual level, Jesus could see what motivated Peter to say that. But on Peter's level, he had a completely different understanding of what the Messiah, i.e. what Jesus was actually there to do. They didn't get the concept that he was there to basically be their sacrifice for their sins, as foretold in Isaiah chapter 53. The rabbinical teaching at that time period was pretty much that when the Messiah came, he would be like King David and he would restore the glory of the kingdom of Israel because they had been under dominion of Gentile powers. They were currently under, at the time of Jesus, currently under the occupation of the Roman Empire. So there you might see portions in scripture, especially in the Gospels, where it's talking about the zealots. And these were these people basically that were looking for their king messiah to lead a military um, campaign against the Roman Empire that they would be dispersed. So it was going totally counter to what they had always been taught. Okay. And on a secondary issue, another reason why Peter couldn't understand that Jesus was going to have to die is because oftentimes people can't understand the scriptures anyway unless the Holy Spirit enlightens them to the truth, right? And Jesus had not yet died for their sins to cleanse us or the disciples of their sinful condition. Again, foretold in Isaiah chapter 53, the temple, so to speak, could not be cleansed. See also 1 Corinthians 6 verses 18 through 20 and why it tells us to flee from sexual immorality. So therefore, the Holy Spirit couldn't take up permanent residence within us and begin teaching us. So they were just totally lost oftentimes whenever Jesus would start talking to them about spiritual things, which is exactly why Nicodemus could sit here and say to, uh, I'm sorry, why Jesus could say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things, when Jesus himself said, you shall be born again. Okay. So... You got to understand, too, that the Holy Spirit was also the one that was promised to come and lead 
the apostles into all of the truth. See also John 16, verse 13 through 15. And he hasn't come yet to be able to do that. Jesus, the master teacher, of course, is there, but there he is speaking largely about spiritual things. And whenever the apostle Paul talks about in um, the New Testament letters, which we also know as the other books of the Bible, such as like Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, and that kind of thing, is that they don't understand the word because they're spiritually discerned, right? They don't get it. And this is definitely was a testimony of my life prior to receiving Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I didn't understand the Bible either. And the disciples were no different. Okay, so we've gone into the fact that the that the rapture is going to happen, where it is in the scriptures, why Jesus really didn't talk about it that much. Let's talk about for a minute, address one common attack against the, the doctrine of the rapture. A lot of people will say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible, so I don't believe it's true. Well, the thing of it is, it is in the Bible, but it's just not in your English Bible. In the language that the New Testament was originally written in, which was Greek, obviously ancient Greek now, back some 2,000 years ago, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, you'll see a word in your English Bibles, or I'm sorry, a phrase rather, that says caught up, Okay. That is translated from a Greek word called harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O. And what that means is, is snatched away or forcibly removed or caught up. So it is in your Bible. And as a matter of fact, how we got the word rapture was that the word harpazo, when the Bible was translated into Latin, harpazo was translated rapturo, which is where we get the word rapture. And obviously, it's in our English Bibles as caught up. And again, it means it's a forcible snatching away. So it's definitely in the Bible. So anytime somebody tells you that, you can kind of give them a little bit of a, uh, a Greek lesson there. So when will the rapture take place? Now, this is probably the most hotly contested issue in the church. And you'll have many, many different views on when this takes place. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I'll tell you where I stand because this podcast is entitled... A disciple's point of view. So I will give you my point of view after I go through them all. The first view is the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And I should back up for a second and say the timing of the rapture is important to people who believe, A, that Jesus will have a literal 1,000-year reign on earth. Okay, There is dis um, disagreement on if that is going to take place. But those of us who believe that there will be a literal tribulation period as we went through last week, and that there will be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ as described in Revelation chapter 20. A lot of us disagree on, we agree on the, the point that there will be a tribulation. We agree on the point there will be a 1,000-year reign of Christ, but then we start differing on when this rapture will take place. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. So there's a Again, like I said, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, just like it sounds that it happens before the tribulation happens. You have a mid-tribulational point of view or a pre-wrath is a little bit of a modification. And this is the idea that the first half of the tribulation is just merely man's and Satan's or, uh, wrath on the earth. And that the midpoint of the tribulation where the Antichrist goes into the temple of God and declares himself to be God is when the great tribulation begins. And that's actually when the wrath of God begins. And so therefore the church is removed before that. And then there's still other people 
who believe in a post-tribulational rapture, which of course would be a rapture that happens after the tribulation period occurs. And that basically believers are gathered when Jesus actually physically returns, we're transformed, meet him in the air, and then we come right back down. Okay. So to give you a breakdown of how congregations likely line up, uh, there was a poll that was taken in 2016, April 26th to be precise, by a group called Lifeway Research, okay? And they polled, I believe it was a thousand pastors in the United States. Now, I know it's pastors, but oftentimes we can infer what congregations are going to believe based upon the, well, what the um, pastor is actually preaching and what they believe is typically the case. So about 36% of those polled were pre-tribulational in their point of view on which they believe the rapture was going to occur. 4% were mid-tribulational, 18% are post-tribulational, and 25% say the rapture is not to be taken literally. So that, that's quite a swath. It's almost, well, it's not really even keel, but you get the idea that we're really not united as a Christian body in the United States, much less probably the world, about when this event takes place. However, this disciple's point of view that's speaking to you right now, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, and here's why. I'll go through the Old Testament examples first, and then I'll move into the New Testament examples. So in the Old Testament, we have at least three examples that God removes people out of the way before his wrath falls, okay? The very first one is Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, right before I should back up, actually. Lot was one of them, but I should back up even further than that. Noah and his family. But when the flood was about to come upon the earth, God gave Noah, since he was considered to be a righteous man in the eyes of the Lord, instructions on how to build an ark. It basically said that I'm going to flood the entire world because it's become remarkably evil in my sight. So builds an ark, the flood comes, and God himself is said to seal Noah and his family and all the animals into the ark. They didn't close the door. God himself did and hid them away in the ark until his wrath was finished. Now, again, let's talk about Lot. Um, the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis was talked about as being cities that were remarkably wicked. OK, and Lot was seen as I don't know if he was seen as righteous before God or if Abraham actually interceded on behalf of Lot and asked God to remove Lot out of the city before his wrath fell. But God did tell Abraham what he was going to do. God said himself, shall I hide from Abraham, my friend, what I am about to do? So long story short, the angels that were sent in to get him out literally dragged him out of the city. It's almost this idea of he, they were caught away from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's the same idea as almost a caught up you could probably use the same word of harpazo for the I, I don't know if it's actually there but the idea is exactly the same as what the angels did with lot and then there was rahab when the city of jericho was being scouted out and going to be taken over by the israelites in a military campaign rahab actually was considered righteous for having assisted the israel israel i'm sorry israelite spies in sc scouting the city and basically said, hide yourselves in the wall. Whenever it happens, you, you and your family will not be harmed. Those are some three Old Testament examples, okay? 
fast forward to the New Testament. And interestingly enough, that long passage of scripture about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 into chapter 5, there are two verses. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and then 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. Both say basically the same thing, that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Okay, And a lot of people seem to think that wrath is either hell or it's just merely talking about trials and tribulations. But the problem is, is in Revelation chapter 6, I believe, whenever the sealed judgments start falling. And on the sixth seal, the leaders of the world scream for the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So already in the sixth seal judgments, and it's probably not because of the sixth seal judgment, which I believe was a, just an, a ginormous earthquake, the totality of everything that had just occurred, basically the world just was thrown and enveloped into war, death, famine, and now a huge ginormous earthquake. And that's just the beginning. And the world leaders are already screaming for the rocks to fall on them because they're scared to death because they recognize this is the wrath of God. So there's nothing that we can really infer that it is any that the tribulation period is anything but the wrath of God. And as I previously stated in Revelation uh, 3 verse 10, it does talk about um, Jesus rescues us from the hour of trial that is about to fall upon the entire world. Another reason why the rapture takes place is to reemphasize God's attention back on Israel. So we already talked about what the tribulation was last week in the 77th prophecy and who it was given to. And by removing the church from the earth, God now turns his attention solely, completely on the nation of Israel to give them the covenant that was meant for them all along. It was prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 through 32. Is also in Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy, and also in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And then, of course, I've mentioned many times Isaiah 53, which is so emphatic. There is no way to read Isaiah 53 without seeing Jesus Christ in there. So the rapture is God, God signaling to the nation of Israel, basically, that he is turning their attention back to them and the covenant that he already foretold in the Old Testament. Okay, And we've already discussed before that the tribulation is indeed the wrath of God. It's, revel it's found in Revelation 6, verse 15 through 17, what I was talking about before. And it wasn't just simply in response to that particular judgment. It was likely everything else that had been falling during that time. So we've talked about what the rapture is. We've talked about some other issues about why Jesus didn't talk about it and why the word rapture itself is not actually in the English Bibles and when it, when it probably will take place. But does all of the timing issues matter? And I'm going to sit here and tell you, no, it doesn't. We shouldn't let what I call these secondary issues divide our fellowship. Now, there will be some pastors that talk about how the prophetic scriptures um, renders the gospel meaningless if you don't take them literally. And so, but I have a problem with that because it places uh, emphasis on the idea that you got to believe in a certain timing of the rapture. What I would say we should focus on as a church, and if you aren't saved, please go to the, uh, pay attention especially to the gospel invitation that I will give you here in a few minutes. But we shouldn't focus on so much when is it going to take place. We should always be ready to meet the Lord at any time because 
notwithstanding the rapture of the church, we're not promised a single day on this earth. How many times have you read stories about people who die in car crashes? How many times have people died of COVID-19 this year and last year, of course, died of cancer? I lost my best friend in cancer seven years ago. So many other people die of cancer. We hear of celebrity deaths all the time. We're not promised a sing single day on this earth. So we should always be ready to meet the Lord. And the thing of it is, is if you're a Christian, you have no fear of God. Okay, in Romans 5, verses 1 through 2, it talks about we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about we may boldly come before the throne of God in our hour of need. We can sit there. There was a parable of the unjust judge that Jesus talked about in um, one of the Gospels. I can't remember exactly which one right now. But it was the idea that there was an old woman that came to an unjust judge so much. He says, you know what? I'm going to give this woman what she wants because she's going to wear me out by constantly coming to me. And Jesus said, if an unjust judge is that way, how much more is your father in heaven going to be towards you? We have the idea of peace with God. We have the idea we can come boldly before God. And we have the idea in the scriptures that we can even ask anything we want of God. The Christian has nothing to fear. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, I would invite you today to really pay attention to this next message that I have to say coming up. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and your heart and everything through a process, if you will, to be able to embody what's already taken place in your heart. By simply saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life. And I want to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do. And your life will change. Your life will change, not necessarily materially, not necessarily in terms of the world, but your life will change as far as your relationship with God. And you can know for certain that you're saved. The Apostle John wrote that when he was pinning 1 John. He says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but that you can know. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
If you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life right now, I would love it if you would contact me, but don't worry. I'm not going to ask for any money or to have you join any organization or anything like that. I just want to get some helps available to you to help you grow in your faith and to start this journey with the Lord that you've started on. Or if you just want to contact me for any reason, for comment or commendation or whatever, I am on two social networks. One is Twitter, one is Minds, M-I-N-D-S. And the handle is the same with both. It's Disciple P-O-V, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V. I'm also on email, the same handle at gmail.com. I would love it if you contact me and I look forward to hearing from you.